the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. I'm actually uh, recording right now because I'm down in Memphis, Tennessee. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, But I do want to uh, touch base on the Chauvin trial the trial up in Minneapolis and what's happening. And we'll cover that in a moment. And we will talk today with uh, Lord Conrad Black. We'll spend some time with Lord Black. He's got another piece up at American Greatness uh, that is very thought uh, provoking. And we'll also visit with our old friend, John Cribbs, John Cribbs, and uh, he is, of course, the uh, author, actually, excuse me, John Cribb, I always add an S, John Cribb, he's the author of Honest Abe, and that book is out from uh, Republic Book Publishers about Abe Lincoln from the time he was nominated for president until he passed away. Extraordinary historical novel, really fun to read. We'll talk with John about how they're trying to cancel Lincoln. They're canceling Lincoln over at CNN and other places, so we'll get all that. All right, let me cover two things. One is, um, they're related one is the um, importance of free speech, which is brings me to Mike Lindell and Frank. And the other is what's happening with the Chauvin trial. Okay, so first let me say this with the Chauvin trial. Up in Minneapolis, um, you know, the uh, the case is winding down, um, you know, by the, by, I'd say the middle of the week, by Wednesday or so. Could be even Tuesday. They'll have finished all of the oral arguments, uh, excuse me, all of the closing arguments. And the judge will um, will uh, give the jury uh, their directions. And I think some, some I, I didn't watch it uh, earlier today to know earlier Monday to know all the all of where it is. But it's, it, anyway, it's winding up, and as it winds up, we have what is supposed to be the great American tradition of our rule of law. And instead of what I would say is the rule of law, we have the rule of the circus. And over the weekend, Maxine Waters, Congresswoman from California, went to Minnesota and she said, you know, it's time to get more confrontational. That's a phrase and paraphrasing her, but I think it's the word she used, confrontational. We had Al Sharpton show up uh, early Monday, maybe late Sunday night. And in other words, the coverage of the the Chauvin trial is all about the aggrieved and a grievance, not about justice. Van Jones, as I've told you over and over again on this program, I've said Van Jones has on CNN said repeatedly things like, if there is not a conviction for murder, it will mean a signal to black people, black men especially, that it's open season on them. That's what he said. At a certain point, you have to start to say that it, it feels and sounds like the news networks are rooting for riots. And it's now been set up. Instead of the rule of law, we have the mob swirling and preparing to not even listen to what the verdict is, but to riot. And the power of the media to allow that to be the narrative can't be understated. The combination of big tech, we talk about it all the time, I call it the narrative machine, big tech plus big media plus big government. In this case, you know, you have Keith Ellison, the former congressman, who's now the uh, attorney general of Minnesota. He's a terribly partisan, sort of race-focused attorney general. He's been in the middle of this case. You have the judge in this case who did not sequester the jury, nor did he actually hold this case trial in a time that would be more normal. 
sometime like in the, you know, if you want to avoid riots, you do this case in the winter. You don't do it in the beautiful weather. I mean, it's just things that you talk to lawyers, they know. And so the big media, big tech, excuse me, big tech, big media, and the big, big government are conspiring to set the nation ablaze and to make this about race, not about the facts, not about what happened, not about how people behaved. It's just about race and racial aggrievement, grievances. And it's headed to towards a disastrous end. The end will be violence. The end will be uh, tragedy. The end will be people that are hurt, that people that are, are, are actually um, damaged, their property damaged. I mean, we're headed in a terrible, terrible direction. And you don't hear leaders like Joe Biden, Kamala Harris saying, hey, let's not have violence. You hear nothing. And instead you hear Maxine Waters and Maxine Waters said, you know, she'd get more confrontational. And there was cop, then there was gunshots at the National Guardsman the other night. And when um, Nancy Pelosi was asked about uh, Maxine Waters' comments, she said, oh, I don't think she was saying anything too far. It wasn't inciting violence. And we have um, nothing from Biden, nothing from Kamala Harris. Nobody's settling down. No, no, one's set, set, no one encouraging people to settle down. And so what are we headed towards? Unfortunately, I would say it's 50-50 that we end up with the worst rioting in our nation's, in my lifetime, let's say it that way. I was, I was not alive in the 60s, so at least back to that point. And, you know, I had a conversation with our friend John Schlafly, who writes the Schlafly Report over at townhall.com, and John's opinion was that, no, no, it's the people, American people are sick of this. If they riot, we're not going to take it. Last summer, people took it. I don't think so. I think a lot of Americans are going to stand back and watch and be devastated and sad and sorry and then we're going to see some horrendous things, like we're going to see people hurt or killed. We're going to see cops hurt or killed. We're going to see cities burned. And then the danger, the real danger, will be that more Americans try to take things into their own hands. And we're just down a slippery slope. And the, frankly, the, the media, the big tech and big media and the big government together, the narrative machine has put us in this position. They're not telling the truth about Chauvin, about George Floyd. It's just politicized because why? Because it sells, it gets clicks, it sells ads. It's terrible. So into that, I'm down in, I was down in uh, Memphis, Tennessee for the better part of Monday with Mike Lindell, a MyPillow man. And Mike was rolling out his new uh, a website, new social media new platform. And it's called franktalk.com. And here's the great thing about Mike Lindell, fearless set this up all servers off site and all this kind of stuff. And he's got this thing set and he starts at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, Monday morning and immediately attacked by overseas hackers and spies and bots and everything. And it takes down the site. And what does Mike Lindell do? He just, he had planned his backup was we're just going to live stream a show. He's been going for 24 hours already. At last time I talked to him and he's going to do a guest. General Flynn was on, uh, um, the, the, uh, some elected officials, um, scientists, all kinds of people, um, uh, are on, on the, on this kind of Jerry Lewis, like telethon going on for 48 straight hours. And, but here's the key. Mike Lindell is going to make it a totally, uh, cancel free webs, uh, a social media, uh, platform. I mean, this is, this is a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity and only a Mike Lindell could have the courage to just roll with it, just do it, just not worry about it and do it and be able to roll this thing out and get it going and, and deal with the deal with the pitfalls and pratfalls. 
So you should be excited. Franktalk.com. Franktalk.com. If you go there on the website right now, you can stream the coverage and you will be able to sign up as soon as they can get through all the, the bots and the, and, the, and the things that are uh, battling them to hold them back and they'll get it all up. So it's very cool. I'm very encouraged by it. I'm very encouraged by seeing the operation that he has in place and what they're up to. So I think it's um, going to be something special. But we have to have it because if you're watching the TV, if you're looking at big tech, you're, you're, getting, you're, getting, you're getting skewed. You're getting fed a line. And the line, in the case of, say, Chauvin case, is that Chauvin's guilty of something. And therefore, if we don't get a full what we want, we're going to riot. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. And so uh, th- thank thank goodness for guys like Mike Lindell and for getting out there, putting his money where his mouth is and getting out into the fray. And we'll see. I think, it, you know, I think um, like any startup, it's going to have its hiccups and it's going to be. But, you know, it feels at one point today, there were 30 at one point the at the beginning of the program um, in the first three or four hours, 30 million viewers had been on from three hundred and ninety five nations. I mean, so there is a pent up demand and with a, with Mike Lindell's uh, um, uh, reputation, it's a pretty it's pretty easy to see he's on to something. And now the question is how do you uh, how do you go ahead and manage that uh, and get that thing really tightened up so that you can um, and you can um, succeed and build the thing out? But I wouldn't bet against the guy who built my pillow as such a huge brand, huge brand and uh, other successes that he's had. So it's very cool, very cool to see. Congratulations. Please check out franktalk.com, franktalk.com, and find out more. Uh, sign up there uh, on their website. It, like I said, it's still a little bit down. Uh, there's some, there's trying to navigate the um, issues there, but uh, but, it, but be encouraged and please check in on that. All right, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will talk with Conrad Black, our old friend Conrad Black, and then we'll visit with John Cribb. And let me encourage you, please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and go over there. You can sign up for the daily email. Goes out each morning at 8 a.m. East Coast time. About 80,000 people now. It's up to get the email uh, on the email address. And uh, also, uh, if you go there, you can see all these great interviews that we've been doing. You can check back in on any of the ones of them uh, after you hear it. If you hear part of an interview today and want to go listen again, you can just go over there and uh, track that down. So we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here in a Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Our next guest is our old friend, Lord Conrad Black. Uh, Lord Black, of course, is a veteran of publishing and business and politics. Uh, he's written histor- history books. He's also written popular uh, nonfiction books. He's got a new column, a new issue, a few few days ago over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. The GOP's Trump solution. I like the first line, or maybe it's the second line. The GOP is Trump's party, and it's the Wall Street Journal that has a Trump problem. Uh, the headline in the Wall Street Journal was the GOP's Trump problem. I guess, Lord Black, the first question I want to ask is, you've known Donald Trump and seen him. I mean, until he decides where he is, he is the party. I mean, if he's going to run or not run, it doesn't matter. He's the party. It, it, do you think he's going to reemerge in a, in a significant way here soon, or is, it, is this what we're in for for a while? Well, I, I think given that it's a fixed four-year term, I think I think he will do the logical thing of uh, not declaring himself prematurely. But I, I mean, he's given plenty of indication of where his thinking is. I mean, it's now well known that he's setting up a, a fundraising operation on the Bernie Sanders model, 
where he can't mm-hmm. be shut down or curtailed by a bunch of big businessmen. I mean, traditionally, the Republican Party was financed by a lot of corporations and rich people, and he's changing that. And uh, and secondly, he's uh, putting in place a, a, a complete ground force to deal with election irregularities. I mean, I have to say, though, I'm generally a supporter of President Trump, but he has partly himself to blame for what happened. I mean, he warned that ballot harvesting was a menace. He warned that it was facilitating a tainted election, and he didn't put the forces on the ground to fight it, and he didn't have the legal force to respond immediately. And uh, and so they, they just took him took him from behind and took him by surprise, except that he predicted it. So it won't happen again. So he's putting himself in a position to make a a run for the presidency that can't be derailed the way his run for re-election was. Uh, And I think he'll decide, depending on how it looks and in a sensible way as time goes by, whether he wants to do it or not, but at least he'll be prepared to do it. Now, as for the Republican Party, I think the next nominee is for certain either Trump or someone approved by Trump. If the the never-Trumpers think that they can win a convention against Donald Trump's influence, they're, they're smoking something. Yeah, we're talking with Lord Conrad Black. That's what I wanted to ask. You know, again, you've observed both in politics and your historical writing um, the ebb and flow of this. So you get people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Adam Kinzinger is not much, but Liz Cheney's at least in leadership. You get Mitch McConnell in leadership, and they sort of uh, pop off and then sort of go quiet. All that is just sort of window dressing. I mean, you said it. It's Trump's party. Uh, anybody that has any sense of politics knows and feels that. And I, that, again, that's not going away anytime soon. On the other hand, um, you know, it, what happens in 2022? Does the, does, does the Trump brand translate when he's not on the ballot? I think what's going to happen is you're going to get an agreement amongst all the Republicans, the never Trumpers and the Trump people, uh, that the, they have to lock arms and fight to prevent this this wave of democratic fundamental changes to to make it a basically a one party country, uh, you know, putting in the four new senators from Puerto Rico and D.C., uh, packing the court, ending the filibuster, uh, that the uh, House Representatives Rule Number One, meaning in effect that no vote has to be verified at all. Everyone can vote whether they're citizens or not, even if they just crossed the Rio Grande illegally a month, a month before. Uh, that all the Republicans have to lock arms to fight that, and they will get the support of a great many Democrats and independents, because all the polls show that 90% of Americans think that there should be some process for entering the country. 80% disapprove of these riots. A majority uh, are opposed. I believe the only poll I've seen is around 70%. So, so adding new justices to the Supreme Court. I mean, they have public opinion behind them, and if it's a united front of the Republicans, uh, it, it isn't just Trump, so the Democrats can't fight it by, by a new wave of Trump hate, then, then I I think they'll win that battle, and I think they'll win both houses of the Congress. Then the matter of who leads the party will be settled between then and, and the presidential election. But if, if the likes of Mitch McConnell and Liz Cheney think they can influence more than the delegates in, in Kentucky and uh, Wyoming uh, against Trump, they, they're, 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 they're mad. It's not true. And from all I see, Liz Cheney's going to get the high jump anyway for, in, in the primary. Yeah, we're talking. Again, we're talking with uh, uh, Lord Conrad Black, and uh, post up on social media his recent piece uh, in American Greatness. Um, does the um, does the the contrast 
with Trump and maybe in a weird way that, excuse me, with Biden and maybe in a weird way, the silence, you know, Trump has not had the megaphone he did with Twitter. In some ways it's, it's working in his favor, right? I mean, it's, he's, he's looking more and more effective and Biden is looking more and more, at least I would say this, Biden is not looking ineffective to me. He's just looking effective, but far to the left. Yeah. Well, Trump himself has said that. I don't know if you watch, you know, he gets interviewed by the Fox people quite often. Um, And and he has said that he actually likes it the way it is now. He gets as much attention as he needs by issuing his press releases. And and he gives occasional, so far only one, really, the APEC speech, uh, but solid speeches. And this way, He's there. Everyone knows he's there. Everyone knows he's, in effect, the leader of the opposition. But he's not sort of in the face of the country all the time, all day, and then all night with his tweets. And he says, you know, frankly, <laughs> I, I, I enjoy a good night's sleep. You know, I don't particularly like sitting up all night sending tweets. It. So I, yeah. I, I think he, he knows it's working. And, and it, you see, the, the Democrats, are, they've never had an argument in the last five years except Trump hate. And you can't mm-hmm. keep Trump hate going when Trump isn't there. Yeah, we're talking again, Lord Conrad Black and uh, um, Lord Black. Here's one, though, though, and we'll finish with this question um, and make sure uh, people are following you on Twitter. I'll post it up, put up on social media. But you, again, you've observed around the world now. We're getting to the point, the end of this Chauvin trial, the media and big tech has been so blatantly um, confronta- uh, no, um, brainwashing the country to try to get race riots and all. And frankly, it's working. I mean, where where are we? Are we headed towards the... Uh, the worst civil unrest since uh, since the 1960s? I don't think so. Uh, I, what's going on now is um, a, a media game in, in, a, in a country of a third of a billion people. Uh, a, a, an African-American is going to, to die violently. At least one will every day, someplace, somewhere in the country. I mean, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. Uh, and, and so there's this little game that goes by to select the most... Uh, uh, unpresentable, tragic, and distasteful example of such a thing uh, each day or each couple of days. And that goes around the riots and demonstrations. Um, and I know I, I don't think you'll find that ramping up and accelerating to even greater violence. I think you'll find it gradually, unfortunately, becoming a ho-hum and people saying, well, look, it's too bad. It's terrible. But, you know, do, terrible things do happen. And a third of a billion people, uh, you know, you, you've got at least one episode of every day. And, and it'll gradually wear down. And by the way, the parallel process is uh, to, to, to ban any coverage of something that doesn't fit the narrative. So where you get, for example, a, a, a white man killed by a black policeman or something like that, that will never get into the news, even if the, even if the white man was unarmed. They'll keep that out. Now, I'm not saying it happens that often. I wouldn't know, but it would happen sometimes. And, and uh, so that's going on. But I think that the, you've got two things. First, the public will, will wisen up to it and think enough is enough. You know, there are problems. We've got to police better. But the answer is and riots and, and, and mm-hmm. all, the, all the outrageous nonsense of BLM. Uh, and at, at the same time, I think you, you'll get the, the, you know, the police forces generally in being more careful, which is a good thing. Yeah, we're talking with Lord Conrad Black. I just got a minute left. Um, the um, the media in this, though, the role of the media in almost feels like they're hoping for, you know, uh, race riot or unrest feels worse than ever. 
I, I have to agree with you, Ed. I think the conduct of the American media, the national political media, has been a disgrace on a scale I have never seen in a democratic country. Uh, it, it, it is only marginally superior to uh, the media of the Soviet Union or of Nazi Germany. Uh, I mean, it, it is utterly appalling. I, I never would have imagined that the New York Times and the Washington Post, I didn't agree with them most of the time, and I knew the right. former owners well. They were fine people, yeah. Kay Graham yeah. and, and Punch Salzberger. I never would have imagined that they and the three big original networks would, would be reduced to the kind of, well, just actually claiming a virtue and saying, frankly, our job is not to report, our job is to attack what we don't like. Yeah, it is extraordinary. Well, thank you as always, Lord. They they will pay for it. They'll lose their franchises. But yeah, there you go. We'll see. Yeah. All right, Lord Conrad Black. I got to run. Thank you as always for your time and uh, for your great writing and insight. We'll talk uh, again very soon. Uh, We'll take a break, everybody. Be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Pro America Report on the Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Our old friend, almost a weekly contributor now, John Cribb, the author of Honest Abe. Honest Abe? Am I getting it wrong? Old Abe? I can't believe I'm oh, doing this to you Abe. now. Old Abe. Yeah, what an embarrassment. I actually flew from, I flew from my hometown in... Um, in Virginia to through Charlotte down to Florida and over to Memphis, Tennessee in the last 36 hours. And I carried old oh Abe with me in my, in my bag because I've been wanting to read up on it. Cause we're going to talk. I'm going to read it again. And uh, old Abe published by Republic book publishers, a historical novel set in just about the dime days before uh, the presidential convention at which uh, Abe Lincoln gets a nomination. Then he wins and goes on to serve until his death. And his, his, uh, the author of the book is John Cribb. And John, I wanted to bring you on because I, I, I see the mounting evidence on CNN and other places of the effort to cancel Abe Lincoln. And, and I, so yeah. I want to first, I want to first ask you, like, I know it'll be contextual. People lived at a different time. They said and did different things, but is there empirically evidence that like Abe Lincoln said terrible things or was particularly unkind to people? What's the, what do you see in all the mountain of evidence you you've read over the years? Yeah, no. Uh, first of all, I think Lincoln was one of those people who really bore no ill will to anybody um, in his life. He, he really didn't. He was one of those, those souls. Um, he definitely said some things uh, that, you know, he was a product of his time, like we, like we all are. And he said some things that would strike us uh, today as, as, as wrong, without a step, or even, you know, even bigoted. Um, but those were, you know, fairly, they were far and, and few in between. They really were. Um, mm-hmm. He really was dedicated to the idea that everybody uh, was heir to those principles that were laid by, down by the, the founding generation. Um, that we all know about, him and the the, the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, that a lot of people at the time wanted to, to cast aside. So I think that this, you know, this attempt to to cancel him or brand him as a racist is really born of uh, historical ignorance and a certain amount of you know just hostility toward this nation in general. I think. When you when you were talking with John Cribb and the book is Old Abe uh, Republic Book Publishers, really great historical novel. But when you're reading back about him in that period, especially, um, w- wasn't he actually being attacked? 
even as a candidate for being, you know, friendly and, and too gentle to uh, yeah. on the issue of slavery. And I mean, they, that was an active part of the attempt to beat him in, in political office because at the time it wasn't that popular. Right. Right. Yes. And, and his fierce stance for our founding principles and his his insistence that slavery not be allowed to spread outside of the South is what what triggered the Civil War. Uh, Lincoln was what was known as an anti-slavery man. He wasn't an abolitionist. He was an anti-slavery man. He he was convinced that uh, slavery was on the path to termination, and it would it would happen fairly soon. And if they could only contain it in the South and not let it spread outside of the boundaries of the South, and he he believed that the the Constitution gave the federal government no authority to end uh, slavery in the South before the Civil War. Once the Civil War started, it was a different matter because then you're in a wartime situation. But um, and that brought him no end of enemies in uh, certainly in the South, but also uh, in the North. But uh, a lot of people don't realize that Lincoln, of course, they know he he, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, and was the, one of the leading voices in, in working to free millions of enslaved Americans. But they don't realize that he died uh, trying to advance civil rights for African Americans. He gave the last speech of his life on April 11th in uh, 1865, just a couple of days after Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. And in that speech, he gave it from the White House, a window in the White House, uh, to a crowd outside on the White House lawn. And he talked about Reconstruction, and he touched on the idea of black suffrage, of voting rights for black people. He's the first U.S. president to advance it, to try to open the door to that. And uh, there was somebody in the audience who was really, really angry when he heard that. His name was John Wilkes Booth, and he turned to uh, one of his colleagues, uh, Lewis Powell, who was one of his conspirators in the in the plot to, to kill Lincoln and to, to kidnap him, and, and then it turned into a plot to kill him. And he said, "That means when and he used the N word, he said that means N word citizenship." He said, "This is what Booth said when he heard Lincoln talking about black suffrage." He said, "I by God, I will put him through. That is the last speech you will ever give." And three nights later, he you know he puts a bullet through the back of uh, of Lincoln's head. So Lincoln literally died in the fight. For civil rights, for Africans. Wow. So this this idea of uh, you know canceling him is ridiculous. Um, and and also um, also we, we give some context to the friendship with Frederick Douglass. I mean, it's it, it has been commented on, of course, and it's historically known. But at the time, not exactly the most natural <laughs> friendship, right? I mean, and and Frederick Douglass in the White House, invited by Lincoln. I mean, it was um, that in and of itself was you know if you if you just if you want to go like in the modern parlance, the optics was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. He was um he and Douglas had a uh a complicated relationship. Um but Douglas ended up admiring him greatly because he realized that what Lincoln was doing, that he was uh that he was advancing the rights of, of African Americans. As a matter of fact, uh Douglas um spoke about after uh Lincoln was gone and he had given that last speech on April eleventh. Uh, and, and in that speech that, that made John Wilkes Booth so mad, um, he talked about giving uh, voting rights, but starting out by giving voting rights, he said uh, to um, he said, I would myself prefer that we're now conferred on the very intelligent and those who serve our cause as soldiers. Now, that to us sounds racist almost. What? You know, we're only going to give voting rights to very intelligent black people and those in, in military uniform. Um, but Lincoln knew what he was doing. He he realized that the idea of black suffrage was a non-starter for most Americans. 
Um, mm-hmm. They just, you know, they weren't going to buy it. But he said, if he, you know, he realized if he advanced the idea of, of let's say, let's, 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 how about allowing, you know, black people who were, were educated, who were liter- literate, because there were all kinds of literacy tests for voting back then, and those who fought and, you know, put their lives at risk for us to, to win this war, let's give them the right to vote. He had a real chance to get that through. And, and, and Douglas, after that speech, he said, he said, that was just like Lincoln. He said, um, Lincoln learned his uh, his statesmanship out on the frontier, where he was a rail splitter, and by you know he knew how to split rails. And the, the way he split rails, he would take a log and he would put a wedge, uh, the end of a end of a wedge into a crack in a log, and he would hit it with a maul on the on the thick edge of the, the wedge until that that log cracked in two. That's how he made split rails for all those fences. And mm-hmm. Douglas said it was just that was just like Lincoln. He said he never shocked prejudices unnecessarily. He said, having learned statementship by splitting rails, he always used the thin edge of the wedge first. And the fact that he used it at all meant he would, if he need be, use the thick as well as the thin edge. So Douglas mm-hmm. knew that Lincoln was opening the door uh, to civil to civil rights and voting rights for African-Americans that night on April 11th. And once he got that door cracked open or that log cracked open, he could he could expand it to larger groups of of African-Americans. And Lincoln paid for that uh, with his life. So Douglas, you know, he 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 came to greatly admire Lincoln. Hmm. We're talking with John Cribb again, the author of Old Abe, uh, Republic Book Publishing, available anywhere you get books. Um, just got like a minute and a half left, uh, John, but I, I, I want to follow up on that. Um, the um, So he, after Lincoln dies, again, lost to the history of cancel culture, I mean, in a way, you want to cancel Lincoln, but afterwards, the sort of lurch back, right? President Johnson is a, is almost a failed presidency right away, and, and it takes, a, yeah. I mean, it takes another generation to bring back sort of what Lincoln had sort of started, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. You know, Reconstruction was a very tough time in this country, and there are some historians that believe that if Lincoln had lived, uh, that uh, it would have been an easier time, given his political capital he had built up by winning the war and his political skills, and he was very determined to bring the, the country back together again. He, remember, he told Americans in his second inaugural he wanted Americans to treat each other with malice toward none with charity for all. So there's some historians that think if Lincoln had lived, that that it would have been an easier time. Others say, no, it was going to be a horrible, rough time, no matter what. Lincoln would have had a very hard time with Reconstruction, just like uh, any other president. We do know that the the minute uh, John Wilkes Booth shot him, he created an instant American martyr and an instant American hero. And that has remained true to this day for most Americans. (laughs) Let's hope it stays that way. Uh, He's not canceled by cancel culture. We'll see. We'll see. Well, keep uh, writing. John Cribb, thank you. The author of Old Abe, a wonderful book, Republic Book Publishers. And uh, we appreciate the perspective on Lincoln and his life. And in that book, you can get a lot of that there. John did thousands of hours of reading and research on Lincoln. So appreciate it very much. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ed, so much. I appreciate it. All right, we'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, listen, that is a really good interview. John Cribb, um, Old Abe. I love talking to that guy, and it's a really good book, Old Abe, Republic Book Publishers. I know I'm, some of you are getting tired of me. It's like a broken record, but I have to tell you, it's a, I'm, right now I'm warning you, I'm forewarning you, that the effort to cancel Abe Lincoln will be ongoing 
because Lincoln is the is the easiest shorthand for Republicans to say, wait, we're not you guys are trying to call us white supremacists. It's crazy. Look at the party we are. And the Democrats hate that and they want to get rid of it. And so the liberals hate that and the, the communists hate that. So they're going to try to get rid of it. So it, it, we're, we're, we're think of this as inoculation for the CNN cancellation of Abraham Lincoln. So that's what I'm doing there. So but it's really good. Go over to ProAmericaReport.com and clue in on that. Uh, and there's three or four interviews now with John Cripp, just extraordinary. Okay, we'll finish up though today. I want to fill you in on this refugee uh, crisis and the cap on refugees and just explain to you what it means, okay? So when people hit our border, unaccompanied minors or anyone, and they claim asylum, what happens is there is this catch and release, this terrible idea that we take your name down and we release you into America and you go away and you're supposed to come back for a hearing, but you're not officially a refugee under the law. You're just someone who we have to assess the status of. And in, in a year or two, when you don't come back for your hearing, you're lost into America and we never get you back. That's the whole point of catch and release. It's a terrible system. But other people are actually designated as refugees. And that, that is a designation that allows you to stay in America with status, they say. You're not a citizen, but you have refugee status and you have your immigration status is, um, is okay. So for a long time, <clears throat> there has been a number, a cap on the number of refugees that the uh, American government will take in any given year. And under Obama, it went way up. I think it was up into the 150s, 150,000 or something. Under Trump, it went way down. And Trump said, we're going to have a cap, and it was going to be an, And this was an area where Stephen Miller, the advisor to uh, President Trump, <clears throat> excuse me, played a key role. And under President um, Trump, I think it might have gone down to into like the 30s, 30,000 or 35,000 one year. But I think it's been right at 50,000 or 55,000. Still a lot of people, but if you listen to the experts, and I have no reason to know if the experts are being uh, disingenuous or, or being honest about it, but they would say there are a certain number of refugees you have to take every year because there's reasons, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I, I, I know that um, you know the people that uh, in the White House with um, the Trump administration tried their best to get that number down to the lowest they possibly could. But the Biden administration late last week announced that they would keep the cap at the Trump level, and they wouldn't lift it. And that was Thursday. By Friday, there was a outcry amongst the far left and the immigration crazies. And within 48 hours, Susan Rice in the White House announced that they were, no, 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 they were changing the policy. They would lift the cap. The cap would go much higher. Now, there's two things to recognize here. Number one, the power of the left in this White House. Um, you know, we're, we're, we we have I, I saw a piece by our old friend Ted Malik. We'll probably have him on this week, maybe even talking about this piece, writing about how Joe Biden uh, hasn't run, hasn't served, hasn't been in office as a centrist at all. I mean, not even close. It's just not even close. It's just like a joke to think that he's a centrist. And so here we are with this. The, the left is is wagging the White House. Right. The, the White House wants to stay at a cap. The left says you can't do it. And the White House caves. Okay, so that's the one reality. And frankly, who's in charge in the White House? It looks to me like Susan Rice, because if Biden and his team, which feels like a Biden move, feels like a Biden and his team saying, yeah, we don't want to raise that cap. It's a, we got too much trouble at the border anyway or whatever. And then it's overruled by Susan Rice and the gang. Now, second point on this that's very important is, do you realize, I mean, have you seen how chaotic the border is now? I mean, it's an absolute disaster. It is a it is coming apart at the seams. The coverage of it is non-existent, but it's just a, it's a travesty. And more and more people 
are seeing it and are recognizing it. And on the edges of the coverage, like this refugee uh, um, cap number, you're, you're getting some more coverage of it. And people are disgusted. And I saw um, Andrew Sullivan, the, the sort of I think he calls himself a Republican, but he's he's very liberal on a bunch of issues. And he's kind of a, iconoclastic. He has a, a Substack. Um, uh, he does a does a um, uh, writes over at Substack now and does a, a newsletter or whatever. And he he wrote tweeted and wrote a whole column. I only read half of the column, but he wrote uh, he tweeted something like, you know, um, when uh, Merkel in Germany, let a million or two million um, refugees into Germany and just created this massive crisis, which precipitated a far right lurch uh, politically in in Europe. You know, it was a disaster. This is Andrew Sullivan's characterization. And he said, and why would Biden do this? And it does it does beg the question. I mean, he's not even trying to moderate this problem. He's not even trying to limit the problem. We have a full on massive crisis now. And they're just pouring gasoline on the fire. And it doesn't look like they're interested in stopping it at all. So when you saw that story on the refugees, there was a two, a double layer to it. One is Susan Rice and her people are in charge of the uh, of the White House. And the second was that, you know, this issue is not going away. They're not even trying to hide it. They're not even trying to limit it. They're not even trying to make it. They're not even trying to make it. Uh, work well and and slow it down. So, um, you know, again, is there anything that anybody can do? Doesn't look like it. In terms of stopping it, there's no real path for the attorneys general of the state to uh, take up anything. You know, there's been some movement by Attorney General Paxton of Texas. Uh, there's been some a move by a Missouri Lieutenant uh, Attorney General Eric Schmidt, but none of them have seemed to uh, get much traction. And, and it looks like the White House and DOJ is happy to have it. So pretty much a disaster. All right, everybody, listen. Thank you as always uh, for our great uh, for our to our great team. Uh, Noah, our technical director, getting everything uh, on track and online. Joanna for booking our great guests. And thank you especially for you all for listening. So please don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Go over there and you can sign up for the Daily Wink as well as you can uh, get re- listen to these great interviews we're having. And we'll be back tomorrow with Ed Martin here in a Pro America Report. Talk to you tomorrow.